the series of talks we're in the middle of right now, we're actually in part six of seven, but each one kind of stands on its own, so you didn't miss anything that you can't, like, uh, pick up for, for today. Um, but it's a series called Seven Questions, and what we did was we looked at, like, the most common questions new believers or people that are just about to cross over into Christian faith are asking, right? So we talked about, you know, the Bible, we talked about uh, the universe and creation, we talked about things like uh, purpose. Gio, last week, Pastor Gio asked, you know, what does God want to do with you? What does God want your life to look like? And today is kind of an extension of that talk um, as we explore a question that I think is really important for many of you with where you are in this journey. So many of you are you were like nominal Christians before, but now you're like really starting to get this Jesus thing, or like you weren't Christian at all, you had no real like faith to speak of, and now you're kind of on the fence and you can't believe what's happening, like this, uh, you know, uh, this change is happening in your life. And so the question is, how should you as a believer uh, live in the world around you? Like how should a new believer be changed by faith? So in terms of uh, the way you live your life, like many of you have lived, you know, kind of normal, secular, Houstonian lives. And there's nothing like inherently wrong with that. But when you come to Jesus, like the question is, can I keep doing all the stuff I was doing before? Or do I got to do all new stuff? And, or do I just got to sit home on the weekends now? You know, like what does it mean to my, my real life when I make this leap of faith and decide that Jesus is, is the way for me to spend my life? Can I keep going to parties? Can I keep cursing? Can I keep driving the way I drive? Can I keep spending all my money on, on you know, traveling and, uh, you know, whatever feels good and partying or whatever? Like, can I, can I keep living, you know, moment to moment instead of having a plan for generosity or a plan for giving or a plan for saving, you know, can I keep living that normal life I was living, doing whatever I wanted, entertaining myself, basically, now that the unthinkable has happened and I think I'm becoming a Christian. Like, what, what do I do differently now that I'm thinking about signing up with, with Jesus? So how should becoming a believer change the way you relate to secular culture? The first place people normally go to answer that question is the Bible. Like, what's the Bible say about the way Christians should, should react to secular culture and should live in secular culture like the one we have in Houston? And, and frankly, I'll just lay this out there, the Bible can be a little confusing about this. If you're not real familiar with Scripture and you just kind of know it on the surface level, the Bible can kind of send you some mixed messages. Because on the one hand, you know, the Bible's like, well, God created every, the world and everything in it, and God likes it. God called it good. Everything in it's good. And then in John 3, it says, God so loved the world that Jesus came to it like, like you know, it's good and, and it's okay to do the things I was doing before. And, and then, you know, in Romans 12, it's like a paradigm shift. And Romans 12 says, you better not conform to this world. This world ain't so good. And Jesus says multiple times, by the way, guys, Satan is the ruler of this world. Satan is the prince of the earth. So maybe you shouldn't do all the stuff in the world that you used to do because Satan's running things here. So, like, what does it mean? Which is it? Should we be building walls up between us and the world? Or should we be taking walls down between 
us and the world. Finding that balance, man, it's hard. The Bible kind of gives us a paradox. The Bible says both. Sometimes you build walls, sometimes you take them down. But when? Where is that balance? And over the centuries, the church has tried to find that balance in different ways. And we've erred on both sides of that question, right? So more, more recently, there's been this push toward Christian relevance, where we want to take all the walls down. And this kind of seeker-sensitive movement of the last 20 years, like the mission of the church has been to make everyone know that you can be a Christian and cool. It's really possible, you guys. You can be a Christian and you can be also cool. You know, and like we try so hard to make sure everybody knows that you can be Christian and cool because Christianity is relevant and my preacher has skinny jeans and it all seems like a really good idea. It seemed like a really good idea. But what happened is that it created this brand of Christianity so desperate to be cool that it looked more desperate than cool. And all your friends only saw the desperate and not so much the cool. Maybe some of you saw that kind of thing too. What it, what it created was a kind of copycat Christianity where Christians just took all the cool stuff the world was doing and made Christian versions of it. And it never worked. We just kept doing it, but it never worked. And, you know, uh, churches do this kind of thing all the time. We at the story would never be so desperate as to be copycat Christians, <laughs> but other churches would. Not us. They've tried, you know, not us. When I was eight years old, hair bands were all the rage. It was the late 80s and the 80s hair bands were everywhere, and you know what hair bands are. It's not, I'm not talking about like stretchies, like whatever, those scrunchies. Yeah, scrunchies, <laughs> whatever. And, and I'm talking about hair bands, like rock bands that had hair, major hair going on. We had Guns N' Roses singing Sweet Child of Mine. We had Rat singing round and round. And Christians saw young people flocking to these rock shows, right? And so Christians, instead of creating our own version of something cool, like something legitimate, authentically ours, we just created a Christian version of what was going on in the world. And we called it Striper. And I was not allowed to buy Def Leppard albums, but I had every Striper album because it's the only thing my parents let me get. My favorite album was To Hell With The Devil. It's a good album. If you want to get into Striper, I recommend starting with To Hell With The Devil and check out the deep tracks to hell with the devil. Little known fact about Striper, their guitarist moonlights as a certain uh, presidential candidate from Texas. <laughs> that is not a political statement. That's just an observation. It's also my favorite slide I've ever shown in any sermon. So, Christians have tried so hard to stay cool, to stay relevant, um, and, and we've always fallen on our faces. We try to stay relevant with marketing, and it usually doesn't end well. We try to market like the world markets. One church, for example, showed a really hip ad trying to convince millennials how badly Jesus loves them and wants to, wants to talk to them, be in conversation with them by using an image of an iPhone text conversation with Jesus Christ. And they, they meant for it to look like Jesus was texting you saying, we need to talk, and you're like, I'm 
kind of busy, can it wait? But they mixed up where the messages go and they made it look like you texted Jesus saying, can I talk to you? And Jesus is like, I'm real busy, can it maybe be later? And Reddit had a field day with this, man. If you ever go to Reddit and search for this, man, they had a field day with how busy Jesus is, how he's too busy for us. And you're like, that's the problem, Jesus. You seem too busy for me. And he's like, I'll make it up to you maybe tomorrow. <laughs> Christians constantly fail at this kind of thing, man. And that's what happens when we try too hard to be relevant to pop culture instead of being who we are. But that's what modern churches have tried and tried to do, win people over by making Christianity cool when it will never be cool. If you are hoping to find a way to stay cool while becoming a Christian, we got, we got, to, we got to talk about that. Because it will never be cool <laughs> in the eyes of most others, for you to devote your life to a 30-something Jewish virgin who said he was God, and then he died, and he rose, and he flew to heaven, and now we sing love songs to him, and we eat Hawaiian bread, and we say, it's the master's flesh. That will never be cool, <laughs> all right? It'd be different. It'd be alt. You know, you could call yourself <laughs> alternative. But cool? I don't know. No ad campaign will ever make us cool. Christians, man, we used to get that, you know, and we used to err on the other side of it. Instead of trying to be cool whenever, whenever secular culture didn't cooperate with, uh, you know, our Christian worldview, we, we would just steamroll the culture. We'd conquer a culture at one point in Christian history. We'd try to proselytize or preach to a culture or we would try to shame the culture or we would try to ignore the culture and just kind of hole ourselves up within the, the four walls of our sanctuaries and just critique the culture from a distance, ignoring it, not being a part of it and none of those really seem like very good ideas. They're all better ideas than Striper but none of them are good ideas for us today. And so the real question we have to ask and get our heads around today is, is um, what was Jesus' approach to the secular culture in which he lived? How did Jesus live in culture? And this, this is pretty clear in the New Testament. The stuff we're about to go over, I mean, it, it's, it's there. It's obvious if you just read the red letters in your New Testament, how did Jesus live within secular culture? The first thing you'll notice if you read those red letters is that Jesus embraced the culture around him. Jesus embraced the culture around him. Jesus knew the culture. He loved the culture around him. He immersed himself in it. And he, whenever he would teach, whenever he would preach, he didn't have three points and a study guide like me, you know. Uh, Jesus just talked about like hundreds of everyday things people in secular culture knew about and used and were familiar with and loved, you know, and utilized every, every day. When, when he sat down to, to write his sermons, he talked about things like fishing and farming and construction. He talked about childhood and motherhood and fatherhood. He talked about weddings and wine and parties. He talked about seeds and trees and, and fruit. He talked about camels and birds and fish, roads, gates, and doors. Over 300 everyday things 
Jesus talked about in his sermons because he knew his culture. He knew his culture well. He embraced it. And he spoke into it. And he didn't just speak into the culture from the outside, as an outsider, which is what Christians sometimes do. We try to speak to culture from outside of it, and it feels condescending to those in culture. Jesus was within culture. He embodied it, and he knew it because he entered it. Jesus entered the culture. Today's Palm Sunday. How many of y'all knew that? Honestly. Half the hands just went down when I said honestly. Just kidding. So a few of you, a few of you knew it was Palm Sunday. <clears throat> Palm Sunday is uh, one week before Easter Sunday. It's the day that Christians around the world are celebrating Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the cultural center of Jesus' world. And Jesus entered the city. He didn't stand on a hill outside the city critiquing it. He entered the city on Palm Sunday. This is the story. It's from Mark 11, verses 1 through 11. Y'all can read in your Bibles, your Bible app on your phone. The study guides have this scripture to the right, on the right column. Or uh, you can follow along on the screens. Mark 11, 1 through 11. As they approached Jerusalem and came to Bethphage and Bethany at Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and just as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you doing this, say, the Lord needs it and we'll send it back. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied, it, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, what are you doing untying that colt? And they answered that Jesus had told them to. They stole the donkey, basically, is what happened. And the people let them go. And when they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road while others spread branches, palm branches, thus Palm Sunday. It was a sign of honor. It was a way you welcomed a king, a, a person of royalty into the city, except the king wasn't on a, a stolen donkey, usually. He was on a, a majestic horse, usually. Um, and those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus entered Jerusalem. He entered Jerusalem went into the temple courts, looked around at everything. Since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the 12. Jesus entered the culture. He went inside the city. Very important, guys. Jesus did not stand back at a distance and talk about the city. Jesus went into the city and met the culture on its terms and met people where they were. Jesus lived in it. Jesus partied in it. Jesus was always invited to parties, and I don't think he ever turned one down. Jesus always went to social events, always went to weddings. He went to so many parties that there were rumors flying about him. His adversaries looked at how many parties he was going to, and they were spreading rumors about what a party animal Jesus was. This is what they said. It was, it's in uh, Matthew 11. It says, for John, this is Jesus talking, right, to his adversaries. John came neither eating nor drinking, and the religious guys said, he's got a demon. Now I come eating and drinking, and they say he is a glutton and a drunk. That's what they said about Jesus, that he ate too much and he drank too much. He partied too hard for their liking because Jesus embraced the culture and he entered the culture. 
and they criticized him for being a friend of sinners. Now, what does that tell you about how we should engage secular culture? Some of you are getting very excited right now. I can feel it. I can feel it. You're like, if I had known this about Jesus, I would have become a Christian a long time ago. This is great. Uh, don't get too excited. <laughs> don't get too excited yet. Because <clears throat> um, if what you're hearing is that it's your Christian duty to par- party as hard as humanly possible, uh, we got to talk about this. Jesus did go to parties. But Jesus always went to parties with a mission. Every time Jesus hung out at parties, the people at the party ended up more like him and not the other way around. And that takes character. And some of us, when we're new believers, we have to take a little break from our old ways before we can re-engage and be the kind of person around whom other people at parties become more like Jesus. Instead of the reverse happening, sometimes what happens is you make that first decision to follow Jesus. Then you go out to the party thinking, I'm going to tell everybody I'm a Christian now. By the end of the night, uh, you're not anymore <laughs> uh, because other people impact you, influence you. Because your character's not ready. But once your character's ready, believe me, Jesus will send you back into those settings You'll know it's time to go back into those same settings you used to go into because you'll be ready to impact and influence others to be more like Jesus instead of you becoming more like them. Jesus embraced the culture. Jesus entered the culture. The third thing he did is that Jesus lamented the culture. Now, after the first service, after 940 service, Somebody came up, like, literally before the end of the service, and they were like, I got everything in the sermon that you said except for lamented. I don't know what lamented means. My husband and I, we're going to Google it, but we thought it would be rude during church to Google it. So what's lamented? If you're confused by that word, it's a biblical word. I'm sorry. I should have explained. To lament is to grieve. Jesus grieved the culture. There were things he saw in the world at those parties he went to that he knew wasn't right. There were things he saw in the city that broke his heart. There's things Jesus sees in every city that break his heart. There's things you see in the culture that break your heart. Jesus lamented the city. In Luke 19, 41, it says, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, Jesus wept over it and said, if you, even you, Jerusalem, he's talking to Jerusalem, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. You see, Jesus embraced and championed culture without pretending like everything's cool, like everything's fine, because there were things he saw that he knew needed to change. There were things he saw and experienced that broke his heart. For example, he loved the city of Jerusalem. He loved the people in the city of Jerusalem, but it broke his heart that they were so wrapped up in themselves and their ways that they couldn't see God standing right in front of them, ready to love them, ready to redeem and change their lives. They couldn't see it because they were too wrapped up in their stuff, and it broke his heart. He said, you're blind to what I could do for you because I love you. You, Jesus said to the city of Jerusalem, and that's really, really important, guys, is that Jesus lamented the city because he loved the city. 
Jesus' grief was born out of his love and not out of judgment or spite. Sometimes when Christians lament the city or lament the culture, it's not wrapped up in love, right? Sometimes it's wrapped up in, you know, resentment. Sometimes it's wrapped up in condescension. But for Jesus, it was always wrapped up in love. He only lamented what was wrong with the city after he had loved the city, after he had embraced and entered and been a part of the city. So I got a question I got to ask you today, and I want you to write your answer down to this question. It's really important, I think, for our next steps together for you to write your answer down to this question. What is it that breaks your heart about our culture in Houston? What do you look around and see happening that you know should not be happening? We've been meeting um, with several leaders here at the story about um, our vision for the next five years. The last two years have been incredible, but what are the next five years gonna bring? Like if God can do what he's done in two years, man, what are we gonna be looking at at the end of 2022? And so we've been looking at this process and as I prepared the team for this, I wanted them to get their heads around what vision is and where vision comes from. And again and again in the Bible, when you look at vision, and if you're looking for a vision for your life, you need to know that vision always begins with heartache. Uncovering God's vision for your life always begins with looking at the world around you and observing and feeling and identifying those things that break your heart. Because that heartache about the things that are and should not be in your city, around you, in your culture, could be the beginning of a God-sized vision in your life. I asked the vision team a couple weeks ago, what is it that breaks their hearts about Houston? One guy in his 20s said, so many of my friends, they've got everything. They've got the best jobs, the best houses, and the best neighborhoods, and best cars. You know, they've got the prettiest wives, they've got everything. And they travel and they watch football. That's all they do. They travel and they watch football. And there's nothing I can tell them right now to break through. There's nothing I can say to help them to see how much they need something more. How much they need to build their lives on a more solid foundation than travel and football and money and success. Because all that stuff is going away at some point. All that stuff is going to disappoint them. At some point, especially if they're Aggie fans. And, <clears throat> and, or Longhorn fans. I could go on if you guys want me to. Or Texan fans. Anyway, the, the point is it's all going to disappoint you. And then what? And his heart breaks for them. A woman in her 30s, she said next, she said, Houston is the biggest city I've ever lived in and this is the loneliest I've ever been. She said, I've never lived around anywhere close to 7 million people before, but I've never felt more on an island. And she said, everyone I know feels the same thing. And she said, I know it's counterproductive. We all know it's counterproductive, but what we do is we fill the loneliness void with busyness. We keep ourselves busy. And what happens is we're so busy we don't have time to cultivate anything real because we're so busy. 
And she said this through tears and every head was nodding around the table because we all got it. She was talking about the plight of single people in Houston, but even married people were like, yep, yep, we're lonely too. Because that's the way it is when you fill your life with stuff that does not sustain you. It does not fulfill you. And, uh, and give you time to cultivate relationships. Another guy said, what breaks my heart is how hungry people are for Jesus and how little they know about him. They really know about him. Because people know what people have said about Jesus. Your friends know what they've heard other people say about the Bible, but they don't know Jesus or the Bible or the gospel. You know, it's almost like we're living in B.C. years again, like before Jesus ever walked the earth. We're living in pre-Christian years now because no one has any idea what the Bible really says, what it's really about, and who Jesus really is. So my question for you is when you think about our city, our culture, the culture of Houston, Texas, what breaks your heart? This is a particular question for you, and I'm not looking for the right answer. All I'm asking you is what breaks your heart, the heart God put in your chest. Because I'm saying that heartbreak could be a sign of a blossoming, budding vision that God's about to give birth to through you. So write that down because it could be the beginning of your next steps. Fourth, Jesus uh, restored culture. He embraced, entered, lamented and restored the culture around him. I've talked a little bit about our Thursday morning Bible study. We have men's Bible studies on Monday mornings and Thursday mornings at seven o'clock. They're just blowing up, and honestly, they're blowing my mind. Every week, I'm like, how could this get better than the last week? And it just keeps, the guys are just, it's incredible to see, honestly, guys. I'd love for you to join us Monday and Thursday morning, seven o'clock, shameless plug. I didn't mean that to happen, but it did. So anyway, Thursday morning, two weeks ago, we're sitting around, with a bunch of guys talking about the Bible. And I just asked the guys point blank. I said, why do you guys not read the Bible anymore? Why are people not reading the Bible anymore? And they said a lot of things, but the, what most of them said was that it, it's boring. It's just mind-numbingly boring to read all the begats, he begat him, and names I can't recognize, and numbers, all this stuff. Like, it's just Boring. I'd rather watch ESPN. And y'all know me. Y'all know how enthusiastic I am about Bible, the Bible and Bible stories, right? And I took it as a personal insult. I said, it's boring. Boring. <laughs> and we spent the next 30 minutes walking through some of my favorite epic, awesome stories, awesome themes in scripture like good versus evil and light versus darkness and angels and demons and horses and dragons and the seen and the unseen and the hero and the villains. And I said, guys, these themes that, that make up the foundation of the Bible story, they're the same themes in every single one of your favorite movies. Same themes in every single one of your favorite stupid HBO shows. The same themes in every one of the books you love. It's the same exact stories, and that's the reason they sound familiar when you hear them. And then I just dropped the mic, man, and one of them said, one of them said, maybe that's what we need. Maybe, maybe we, we need a Tolkien or a J.K. Rowling or a George Lucas to rewrite the Bible stories so people find them interesting again. And I said, they already did. 
They already did that, and they called it the Lord of the Rings, they called it the Matrix, and they called it Harry Potter, and they called it Star Wars. If you can't watch Star Wars and see how they plagiarized and ripped off the Holy Spirit and called it the Force, If you can't see how Katniss Everdeen saying, I volunteer as tribute to save her sister, is just like Jesus saying, not your will, but my, my will, but yours be done to save all of us. If you can't see that Frodo is really Jesus and his ring is really the cross, I don't think we can be friends and hang out anymore. <laughs> they already rewrote the stories. Why are those stories so popular? Ad nauseum. In pop culture, why are they still centered around a Christ figure who takes the weight of the world on his shoulders and willingly suffers for the sake of others? Why? Because no matter how far this culture we're living in drifts away from God, the gospel is still written on people's hearts. These people we love are still created in God's image. And they still know the story. It resonates with them when they see it on the movie screen, when it's some hobbit in some unseen world. But when you tell them about Jesus, it's like they glaze over. But the story is there because it's a familiar story. Because Jesus is written on every one of your friends' hearts already. He embraced the culture. He entered the culture, lamented and restored the culture to its original purpose and design. When Jesus entered a culture, he didn't change everything in it fundamentally from what it was into something completely different. The fishermen that he met, they didn't stop fishing. They were still fishermen after he met them. They were just fishermen with a purpose. They were fishing for a reason. The tax collectors Jesus met and saved, they didn't, the Bible didn't say they quit their jobs. They just stopped ripping people off. They stopped stepping on people to try to get ahead in the business world. The men and women Jesus met at parties didn't stop drinking wine or eating food. They just started partying differently. They, they kept the party going after they met Jesus. It's just that every time they broke bread, they stopped and remembered Jesus and what he did for them. And every time they drank wine, they stopped and gave thanks and remembered Jesus for what he did for them. You see, Jesus wants Christians at the party. Jesus wants Christians in the culture, who embrace the culture, who lament parts of the culture. So that through you, he can restore part of the culture. You see, that's what he's up to. That's why he doesn't call you away from everything out there, but he calls us into the world and into the culture so that he can bring restoration and purpose. So the question then for Christians and new believers, people that are kind of toe-in-the-water Christians, you know, the question for us is, who do you think Jesus wants to restore through you? Who is it in your sphere of influence that Jesus has his eyes on? It may be a person. It might be an individual. It may be a group, a segment of people in our culture. Who is it that has the gospel written on their hearts 
They just might not know it yet. I'm telling you, whatever your heart is breaking for, whoever your heart is breaking for, that's the beginning of God's vision for your life and for your next steps. And I pray that as you write down the name of that person or that group of people, I pray that you take that vision home, that you pray with that vision and pray with those names in mind and that you surrender to that vision God is dreaming up in your heart. Because that, guys, that is what it means to be believers who engage the culture. That's what it means to be followers of Jesus who enter and embrace the city, the city of Houston that we love. Let's go to God in prayer. Jesus, thank you for calling us to rest, restoring us and being willing to use us for the restoration of this city and the people in it. We thank you for the ways we see the gospel written on the hearts of people we love. Truly, the gospel is alive and well in the city of Houston. God, it just needs to be restored. Jesus, we pray that you would use us and we would be courageous enough to surrender to your vision for our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.